welcome to episode 242 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was engineered on April 9th, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and welcome to another Roundtable edition of the show. It took a little bit of time wrangling to record a group chat with my expert guests today, because as you'll hear, they are as far flung as uh, as flunging goes. Is, uh, is that a word? Anyway, I, I recorded our chat uh, at 10pm UK time last night. Uh, that meant it was 7am in Australia for Sydney's manager of cycling strategy, Fiona Campbell. And it was early evening for transportation uh, entrepreneur Robin Chase of New Urban Mobility Alliance, that's NUMO, of Washington, D.C. And it was late afternoon for Colorado-based Tim Blumenthal, president of People for Bikes. Of course, we talked about sourdough, dogs and social distancing, but the main discussion was about the future for cycling in a post-coronavirus world. The hook was an article I wrote for Forbes.com, where the president of Britain's Automobile Association mused that if car use didn't recover after the end of the COVID-19 lockdown, it would be best not to splash £27 billion on building more roads for motorists. Now, that's a rational yet radical point of view from Edmund King. And I'll be dropping the audio from that interview into the second half of the show. Let's get going. It is 10 o'clock in the UK for me, but I have got uh, three guests here, uh, international guests from, from all across the world. Well, well, two from the US and one from Australia. And I'm going to go to the one from... Uh, Australia first. So Fiona Campbell, tell us uh, a bit more about you yourself. Give us that uh, biography that I, I did prompt you to, to to give beforehand. Hi, Carlton. Yes. Um, my background professionally is in IT as a mainframe computer programmer, but um, that was by day and by night. I was doing bicycle advocacy work for a decade um, before 12 years ago when I started working for the City of Sydney. Um, in, I'm now manager of cycling strategy and um, I have quite a challenge to make Sydney bike friendly. When you say you're bicycle, I'm going to come in here and, and ask <laughs> supplementary questions, by the way. Uh, when you said bicycle advocacy, so that was like in a non-professional role, you were just literally a bicycle advocate and then you leapt into uh, being a job. Correct. Yeah, I was involved in a number of local bicycle advocacy groups, um, as well as helping out with writing submissions for the state advocacy group. And then I was on a number of national committees representing um, the cyclists from around the country. And I, even though I've met you at lots and lots of different conferences around the world, I had no idea about your computer programming background. 
So that's the challenge for everybody else. You're going to have to tell us something that I didn't know about you, you yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so Robin, so tell us, tell us about, uh, tell us about Robin. Um, 20 years ago, I co-founded Zipcar, which is a car sharing company. And I think was one of the first that raised venture money and dem- and used, built a beautiful technology and showed that there is a real demand for this and it can scale. So there's a larger scale consumer demand. Since then, I've founded a number of other um, transportation companies, um, some of which didn't succeed. So I did one called Go Loco that was intercity ride sharing and no one succeeded at that in the US. Um, then I did a peer-to-peer car sharing company in France called Buzzcar and we ended up not being the number one and we merged with Drivey. And I've recently co-founded my first nonprofit called NUMA, the New Urban Mobility Alliance. So really, I'd say my life is totally devoted to and focused on addressing climate change in urban transportation. And Fiona, I love bikes too. Man, <laughs> my, my love affair. I've taken photographs of you on bikes. You right? did. So yes, did. I, 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 that, was a London, that was moved last year, wasn't yep. it? So. Okay. And same question to Tim. So Tim, you're going to have to go right the way back to your your journalism days as well. Well, I am the president of People for Bikes, which has become the largest U.S. nonprofit bicycle uh, advocacy group. I've been doing this for uh, 16 years, but uh, somehow the last 42 years have flown by uh, I started as a cycling journalist, in fact, uh, wrote internationally for uh, a publication in, in England called Cycling Weekly and Velo in France and Velo News in the United States and then Bicycling Magazine and uh, uh, did seven Olympics for NBC as a writer and a commentator and an advisor. And, uh, you know, it's just it's, so much has been about bikes. And then 27 years ago, I became the first CEO of the International Mountain Bike Association, which was uh, it was happening at a time when mountain biking was growing really, really quickly. And that was both an opportunity and a challenge for existing systems and land managers. And so I ran that for 11 years. And uh, People for Bikes has been um, really an awesome experience for me. And it's the industry pulling together. So the industry putting money into 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 grassroots stuff and and paying people to do that. It's about half industry, you know. Uh, uh, it started with that. It started twenty years ago, where the bike industry said, "Look, we either need to work together to improve the conditions for bicycling, uh, or else bicycling is really going to suffer." But uh, maybe 13 years ago, we formed a separate but affiliated foundation, and that has a completely separate base of support, uh, 1.3 million individuals, major foundations, a lot of health-related uh, foundations, and um, somehow we've been able to serve both the industry and that whole other constituency that I just described. And I remember getting lots of emails from you, uh, building up that 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 million plus uh, supporter base. Yeah, well, I mean, you followed it f- very closely for a long time, and you know, one of the great things about it, and, and I'll stop quickly here, is uh, 
it's now much easier to communicate globally. And so we're working um, in unison with best practices and best ideas and the most capable people around the world. So we're, we're learning a lot, not just from uh, Europe, but from Australia and certainly from Asia and South America and, and Africa. Okay, well, thank you all for for being on uh, on on the show today in our different uh, time zones, and it's fantastic to be able to talk to you uh, in all our different uh, time zones. And Fiona, I'm going to come to you because it is early morning uh, for you, so you've got up nice and bright and early. And we're, we're kind of I'm a night owl here, and and Robin and Tim are well shifting into the early evening. Well, Tim is kind of early afternoon, well late afternoon, aren't you, Tim? Uh, but Fiona, I'd like to come to you now and, and let's let's go through and find out what people, how we are coping and what we are doing in in lockdown. If indeed you are in lockdown, I'm, I've no idea what's happening in Australia. I've not, I've not been, it's not been in the news what's happening in Australia. So Fiona, tell us, how are you uh, isolating and, and, and are you in full lockdown? I think similar to other countries and what, from what I can read, um, similar to the UK, we are supposed to be staying at home and the only reasons to be out are if you have to for work and especially essential workers um, or to get essential supplies, groceries, medicines or for exercise. Um, But when we are out, then there's the social distancing. We've got a metre and a half. And then you were mentioning before, and I'm going to bring this in because Tim had a fantastic um, Instagram uh, person to mention, but you're making sourdough. My husband's making sourdough, mm. yes. And um, just with the circumstances, he's making extra loaves each day and just distributing that to a few neighbours who we know um, appreciate it. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. And uh, Robin, how, how are you isolating? And, and is your uh, city, is that in lockdown? Um, I would describe Cambridge, Massachusetts exactly as Fiona described. And my upstairs um, neighbor and I have been sharing sourdough loaves of bread alternately <laughs> for a few nights. Um, and I, I've been taking a lot of bike rides. And, and what I've been delighting about bikes is I think you are in, a, in an enforced six-foot distance from most people at all times. So it's been a really great way. I've gone out with neighbors where we have kept our distance but had a joint bike ride. It was very pleasant. Hmm. Yes, you'll get hauled away by the police if you do that in the UK. Isn't that Do you get no recreation? We get recreation. We get like technically – there's no limit. They, they say you can go out once a day. They're, they're kind of saying but that's really only like an, an hour – but now they're getting quite strict on it, you really mustn't be with anybody uh, at all. You've got to be pretty much on your own. So, and the so six they're, they're getting feet? stricter on that. And the six feet? Yeah, well, two, two meters. We, 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 use, <laughs> we use the uh, metric. So, yeah, what, I, I think it's described in Norway as one bike length. You know, that's how we're describing it. It's one six foot, two meters. Um, just, yes, there's got to be a distance between. And 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 Tim, how are you isolating? Well, it's, it's my experience seems almost identical to what all of you have described. Uh, we've been working at home for nearly a month. We're very lucky here in Colorado to have uh, a really great connected uh, bicycle network. 
Um, most of it, but not all of it, is paved. I've never seen uh, Boulder's bike paths so busy. And this is a place where probably on a per capita basis, there's more bicycling going on than just about anywhere else in the United States. But And of course, the difference, and I'm sure you've all seen this, is uh, I usually I'm inside working during the day, but now if I can get out and ride or, or walk for even for 45 minutes at two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, it's amazing how many people are out. And uh, it's really encouraging. Uh, we've had such a big e-bike uh, surge here. So the demographic, uh, it's really broad, a lot of older people. And the one big change is um, the governor of Colorado asked everyone to wear a mask or you know, some kind of uh, face protection when you go out. So that 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 really has only been for the last five days. So the on the path experience has changed a little bit, but um, it makes you feel optimistic about the future. And how wide, if you don't mind me asking, how wide are your bike paths in 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 Colorado? Because that they're going to be kind of busy, as you're saying, busy. But does it, uh, so busy that you're quite close to people? Or? No, no. I, you know, I would say our typical width is 8 to 12 feet, somewhere in there. And people are doing a really good job of not getting close. And, you know, this is a hub for uh, international bike racers who historically and always, you know, since I've lived here and I've lived here for 27, 28 years, would be training in big, tightly knit packs but I haven't seen any of that here. Um, you know, I think people have really bought into um, it's called social distancing. But somebody said to me the other day, it really is physical distancing. Mm hmm. And what about I'm going to ask everybody this, but I'll start with you, Tim, anyway, because we're, we're on this kind of subject is how are motorists treating? I mean, if, if you if you do have to come away from the bike paths, and you have got to use the roads. Are motorists also social distancing, physical distancing, or are they going far too fast uh, beside you? H how are the motorists treating you? Uh, I, I, I'll give you the wise guy answer. There aren't any motorists, but uh, mm. you know, our um, and this is true. I think in the UK and probably in a lot of places in the world, our vehicle miles driven is probably down 80 or 85%. So the roads, even at five o'clock uh, rush hour, and there is no more rush hour, um, feel completely uh, empty and, and, and wide open and quiet. And uh, yeah, it, it's a big change. But the one thing that I have noticed and when I've been out in the car is that when you come to a traffic light, people don't pull up tight behind you. They kind of stay back um, six or eight feet. That's interesting. So maybe the social, dis the physical distancing is, is happening in the real world, even in a car. So Robin, same question to you. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, are you, are you coming away from bike paths? Are you always on bike paths? And how are motorists treating this? I want to say that our bike paths, you are passing someone four feet away from you for that millisecond, I guess. Um, and motorists, I also have a dog. And when I walk, I walk my dog. And I would say people are being very polite that uh, crossing 
jaywalking in my neighborhood, <laughs> people, motorists um, will stop a hundred yards, a hundred feet away. Like they'll slow right up because the streets are empty and they see you and there's just no crowding. Everyone is giving space to other people. Um, and Robin, that's different. That, that's, that, that's a new behavior. That's a new, definitely new behavior. That There's so much mm. courtesy. Yeah, I'd, I'd say there used to be some mm. courtesy. Now it's an almost ubiquitous courtesy. And I wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe last week on the on this topic, which was the ways went and did some data did some data search for for me. And in Boston, the car trips are down are twenty five percent of what they used to be, so down seventy five percent. And my pitch was to open to close. How do we say it appropriately? Mm-hmm. To open more roads to pedestrians and bikes and close them down to car traffic, particularly along the waterways we have and along parks to just widen those sidewalks and widen those park spaces so people don't have to be so close that we have this real opportunity. And you're successful? Oh, it's maddening. Um, I know it, it's been heavily retweeted in social media and we've had a number of phone calls, a lot of emails about it, but both the city of Boston and the city of Cambridge have not acted on it. And in the city of Cambridge, which I don't do a lot of local politics, um, but I did tell all the city councillors, here's what you should be doing. This is what's happening world round. They have continued to not vote on it. They table it. And they are basically cowards and hoping to ride it out. And so they're thinking that we can just do nothing. And I guess my larger point, which I think proves for all of us, that these shelter at home, it started at two weeks, right? And then it went to four weeks. And now it's going to be up to six or eight weeks. And I was particularly thinking about the 1 million school children there are in Massachusetts or the 115,000 homeless school children in New York City. But to keep children for months on end stuffed in their apartments is unnecessary and mean. And if we had wider streets and bicycling, I think they could be out and about and keep their social distance. So I think this is an opportunity where we should be absolutely doing it. And it's very short-sighted I think of these cities to say, oh, let's just, it's, it's going to end any day now. We're not going to have to step forward to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and Fiona, I'm sure you must be quite jealous of uh, Tim's wonderful uh, bike path network in, in Colorado. Yes. Um, but you have had successes in, in yes. the past. And then you had reversals of those successes in that your <laughs> municipality then took away what you, you, you brought forth. Has there been any change of view on the ground where you are, for instance, in, in, in maybe Robin's style, trying to, to, to open streets up to, to, to non-car users? Yeah, um, the battle continues. Uh, we have been making some progress on getting the network more completed so you know a little bit of progress um and certainly the bike paths that are recreational along the river and around the foreshore at the moment are incredibly busy and really don't allow enough space for social distancing with all the people walking running and riding um in the city center the, there's been more of a drop of course because commuting fewer people are commuting to work things like restaurants and and the um, whole tourism sector and and our our sector has all been closed down. So a lot of people out of work. 
Um, so overall, according to the City Mapper Mobility Index, travel overall travel in Sydney is down to just 13% of normal travel. On the motorways, um, the tollways, their revenue um, shows that the traffic on the motorways is only down by 30%, so down to 70%. Um, I think there are a lot of trucks still trying to restock supermarkets with toilet paper. Um, and on the yeah, cycleways... Toilet paper was yeah. Australia too. That was that was a yeah. global thing, was it? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> um, so I know that in Brisbane, the their bike counters show that there's been a doubling in bike trips uh, in this time. So that's that's amazing. We most of our counters are not on recreational routes, so it's harder for us to to get that. Whereas Brisbane, they are. Um, but overall, most of our counters are showing about sixty to ninety percent of normal use at the moment. Which, considering the overall drop in travel, is pretty astounding and shows that bikes are are resilient. The peak though has changed. So instead of having a morning peak from the commuting and afternoon peak, the the new peak is from lunchtime to dinner. So some of that is food delivery riders in, in the city centre, I would say. And Fiona, what about key workers? So the, the, they're going to stick to the, 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 you know, the rush hour times if they're going to be doing the same job as they've always done. Yeah, I mean, some of the key workers like at hospitals and cleaners are, are not um, are shift workers. So, um, yeah, in the city centre... It's more finance industry and tourism. So they're either out of work or they're working from home. Mm. Um, We now call these the unessential workers, of course. (laughs) Yep. Um, So in terms of attitude and being able to reallocate space, as Robin said, the City of Sydney has been trying to to do that and we're trying to pursue it. We've got some ideas about where and how, um, but sadly the state government holds all the cards. They control the road system. Even the so-called local council roads um, are all subject to state government. So, so far, we are not getting good feedback from Transport for New South Wales, Um, but we hope that that will change. I mean, particularly because we think it's an economic issue. So, as restrictions are gradually lifted, which they'll need to be to allow the economy to sort of not completely flounder, um, that being able to revive the economy will rely on people feeling safe, being able to socially distance, or, or um, as Robin said, I think, or Tim, um, being able to physically distance. Mm. Um, and if they don't have the confidence that there is safe space in the downtown areas and in the shopping areas, they're not going to be there and that economic recovery will be hampered, which means that they'll need to overuse the lever of reducing the restrictions uh, um, and that will then, you know, potentially mean that the COVID outbreak will then worsen. So it's really important for the economic recovery to have safe space. And at the moment, the footpaths are too narrow in downtown areas for people to be able to, to distance. So it's, I think it's really crucial for economic reasons as well as for health reasons um, to start opening up those streets for better uses. And because the traffic is so low now, now would be the ideal time to do that. Robin, you wanted to pitch in there? Yeah, when I was writing that article, I was a person who heads the pedestrian efforts for the state of Massachusetts was, was editing. And one of the things that she was suggesting to me was that the police 
that to close these streets, we have to be really cautious about what, how do we do these closures without requiring police? What, what's a fast way to do it? That it was, how do we make that safe? And um, during my brainstorming over the last few days, I just wanted to throw out to Fiona and I had this, so here's my, here's my dream that works on, on some streets. So streets where you have um, a lane and a half in a one way or where you have parked cars and enough space that I feel like we could tell all the people who've got those parked cars, please move your car out two meters and repark it. Mm-hmm. And it would be, so if I look at it, if I think of a place that's very obvious, like Brooklyn, Brooklyn has all these one-way streets, cars parked on both sides, and it's effectively two teeny tiny lanes that has a lot of double parking. But so we could create an immediate, without anybody doing any striping, cones, policemen, whatever, just pull those cars out. And so... And in, in, that's just one tiny subset of the group. But I thought, wow, that's a really simple one where that exists. Or in neighborhoods like I live in where there aren't many cars and I try to walk in the middle of the street because I think I'm going to take this back. I still feel slightly anxious and I would definitely not let my eight-year-old do it without my supervision. I don't have an eight-year-old anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, how can we reclaim space quickly without requiring a lot of emergency personnel supervision or maintenance. Um, so just to say, in Bogota, they, they did 50 kilometers of roads that they quickly expanded to let emergency workers get to work using bikes and um, e-bikes. And a lot of the cones were, traffic cones were stolen and they had to shrink that down to fewer kilometers because it was so hard to maintain. There are lots of cities who have been experimenting with this i mean it's a growing list i mean every time i go on social media there's a people in in especially fiona i'm sure will appreciate this is uh bicycle advocates in in certainly in the uk and i'm sure in australia uh, put these out there as well how come we can't do that because you know berlin's doing it and and bogota's doing it and it's a growing growing list i'll just you see it happening in so many cities around the world now um, at, you know, really good moves to, you know, that is for sensible reasons and, and very beneficial. And coming back to that economic argument, like no city surely wants to be the only one that's ended up being the one who missed the boat and who's hobbled their downtown economic recovery because people can't safely move around. You know, mm-hmm. like we, we don't want to be, we, we shouldn't want to miss that boat. Mm-hmm. Tim, do you want to just bookmark, uh, um, bookend that, I should say? Well, sure. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground in the last couple of minutes, and it might be time, and Carlton, it's your podcast, but to start thinking about how what's going on now will translate um, you know, in the months and years ahead. And for sure, that's something that we're doing. We're we have close working relationships with a lot of the biggest U.S. cities. And sure, we've seen a lot of pop-up bike lanes. And we've also um, been involved with the development of new infrastructure investment proposals that um, may help um, our nation and our states and our cities uh, achieve key goals. But as I'm sitting here listening, I'm thinking, we still have a fundamental problem if we're talking specifically about bicycling. And that is uh, all of our countries 
or most of them are still really focused on, on, on car use. And the cars in the United States definitely king. And it's going to take a, a big shift um, with a lot of elements to fundamentally change that. And, you know, there, there, there are certain numbers that I think about all the time, um, how many miles Americans drive and how that compares to um, uh, historical patterns. Uh, another one is uh, what's the price of gasoline? Um, what is the relative convenience of um, driving a car? The average American commute is 26 minutes and about uh, 12 or 13 miles. It's a pretty long way to ride a bike, even uh, an e-bike, unless the conditions and the infrastructure are really, really good. So I have all these thoughts swirling in my head, but I'm going to leave it to you to help uh, focus us or focus me. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. You're right. It is slightly out of sync, but I'm I'm quite happy to to, to go with the flow here. So but the question was going to be, and it, it, I was going to preface it by saying it's kind of horrible to, to, to try and get positives out of such a negative situation because there are, you know, in the UK today, there was 900 people dying. So people are... Uh, many, many thousands of families uh, are now without their loved ones. So it, it is, we have got to the, always remember that we can't just be gung-ho about this and say, well, this is the, the this is the fantastic future we've got because we've got a pretty awful present. However, if we just park that and acknowledge it, but then, you know, do go and, and, and leap forward and just say, yeah, but what does this mean for the future? So if I go straight to Fiona and ask her, is this is this now cycling's time? Is this now out of a tragedy? Will we get something? Do you think something incredibly uh, different going forward? Yeah, I think you're right that, um, you know, that the tragedy at the moment is not just the there are lives lost and jobs lost and people's livelihoods and, and there's, there are a lot of people struggling. Um, and so, you know, obviously you, one wouldn't want to do anything that w made that worse. And, and so we're not talking about that. We're talking about given that that is the fact, you know, where can we go from here? And I think for me, we all know that behaviour change is, is really hard. It's incredibly difficult to break habits. And that's why when you're doing behaviour change, that, that little window when someone changes jobs or moves house um, is usually one of the few times where you have a better chance of success. And here, here we have a global scale disruption of people's travel habits. So rare. The last time it happened in multiple countries was nearly 50 years ago in 1973 with the oil embargo, which affected the UK and the US and the Netherlands. And that time gave the population, you know, again, with huge economic costs and, and all the consequences, but that gave the population a glimpse and a vision of what their cities could be like without being dominated by traffic, you know, clean air, quiet, safe for children, for walking, for cycling and socialising more space for people, just like we're seeing now. Um, but back then, 50 years ago, the UK and the US went straight back to normal and only the Netherlands used that opportunity from that new vision that, that people had got during that time, as well as the, the public horror at the human cost of um, car domination, 
to gradually make their cities now the envy of the world for quality of life and human interactions. So I think to not take the opportunity and to do what the US and the UK did 50 years ago and just not get any lasting benefits out of it would be, you know, really remiss. People are loving this. People don't want to give up the chance that they can now go for rides with their kids in the neighbourhood. So before I go to Robin and, and Tim and ask them the same question, I just want to come back to you, Fiona, and just ask, are you getting people who previously wouldn't have given you the time of day uh, in your in, in your day job? Uh, are they now coming to you and say, ah, you've kind of, you were right. You've always been banging on about, you know, cycling being a solution to so many of the world's ills. And are they now coming to you and saying, well, maybe we should do this? Is that why you're basing this as we should use this as an opportunity? Is that because people are actually coming to you who you would never have talked to normally about this? Sadly, not yet. <laughs> um, but what I, what we are seeing is people, like people sending me um, videos of them riding with their kids saying, I've never done this before. Look at all the other parents being able to ride with their kids. I'm getting um, emails from people involved in um, cycling and cycling advocacy saying, how can we um, turn this into some lasting positive change? But but not the decision makers just yet. Only a few odd ones, but you know, not the crucial ones that need to make the decisions yet. So, Tim, from your bicycle advocacy um, uh, eerie, from your, your kind of like your overview of the whole industry in in the US, do you see this now as something that is is going to be? A, a change of guard, an, an epochal change. Is that what you see going forward? Uh, I'm not sure about epochal, but I, you know, more people are riding bikes for sure. Uh, and I expect some of them, hopefully many of them to keep riding for sure. Uh, bike, bike shops have been designated as essential businesses in most U S states and the, the bike shops that are open are doing really, really well with basic repairs, changing flat tires, um, helping people who have a bike but haven't ridden it in years and helping people who are brand new to bike riding. So that's really uh, uh, that's a positive and that that positive is likely um, going to continue. But. There are all these other angles that are sort of coming out now, and I, I want to talk about just a couple of them. One is uh, I expect that after the uh, COVID-19 um, pandemic subsides or hopefully is resolved, that more people will work at home. And it's quite possible that um, the number of commuting miles that people drive or the number of commuting trips that people take, period, uh, will, will actually go down. Uh, another angle that you know, the panel has talked about is the economic benefits of uh, of riding a bike. Just the you know fifty percent of the trips that Americans make are three miles or less, and it's a pretty relatively inexpensive way to get around for both essential trips and for recreation. One thing that I, I don't hear many people talking about, and I'm going to take a risk by introducing it, is in the United States. A lot of the people who have died uh, from the virus had pre-existing conditions. And unfortunately, what this points to is our personal health crisis. It points to limitations of our healthcare system for sure, 
But there are a lot of people in the United States, a pretty high percentage, who are either um, clinically obese or have um, cardiovascular uh, issues. And I'm hopeful that that link is recognized and that uh, I'm not too optimistic, but that we start paying a little bit more attention to lifelong health and the importance of regular physical activity, because it's definitely been an underplayed card in the United States for really the last 30 years. It is kind of one of the standard jokes in in the UK is that people, you're now seeing people out there exercising and, and, and exercising their right to exercise who would have never uh, exercised normally so it lots in other words lots of people uh, new to exercise are actually getting out there perhaps for the first time and this is this is the uh, fiona's life change she's mentioning uh, so tim you reckon that uh, with lots of newbies out there that will translate into uh, long-term more use yes and the other thing it, it's great for you know, and, and this will sound myopic, but it's great for us because we've been working really hard with the government at every level to build better infrastructure to serve people on bikes and on foot. And too many Americans have never experienced it until now. So now there's a, a new appreciation for all the bike paths and the underpasses and, and the bridges. The one other thing that that's on my mind is um, there's going to be a lot of tension uh, when it comes to transit. And, um, you know, I'm talking about buses and streetcars and, and, and trains, um, you know, at least in the short and intermediate term, uh, even when restrictions are listed, people are going to be inclined to keep their um, distance. And um, what that probably means is that people will continue to use bikes. And, I, you know, I really value transit and it's super important. And, you know, my son owns a restaurant in San Francisco and depend, and his business depends on, on transit. And San Francisco just this week has cut 90% of its bus routes. And it's uh, debilitating for jobs, debilitating for businesses. So, you know, th- there's so many factors swirling here that it's really a challenge to see clearly what's going to emerge. I agree. It's uh, it, it, we, we can we can sit right at the foothills. We can see the, something is changing. I mean, society is clearly changing. You know, when places like um, Spain are talking about uh, like a, a guaranteed um, uh, living wage for, for every single citizen well that's 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 brand new and that's that's come from this particular crisis and then you've got I'm, I'm hazarding a guess here that maybe the u.s now will think about more about um well for want of a better expression like the national health system uh, equivalent for for the u.s and i know it's a huge bone of contention across there but now surely with a, a pandemic um, crippling the country there's got to be those conversations have got to be uh taken more seriously tim you think yeah i you know i, I again the political environment is, is is really difficult and difficult to talk about um mm. uh you know because there's a a pretty big group of americans who basically feel like 
uh, if you don't make it, it's your fault. And it's not government's uh, responsibility to make up for your personal shortcomings. And uh, I'm not sure how productive uh, a discussion that would be right now, but, um, you know, I, I do think that the personal health angle, the money savings angle, um, uh, the economic benefits, um, it, it really, uh, a lot of, we don't have any problems with city leaders right now. Um, uh, or, or maybe that's a little bit too bold a statement. A lot of mayors understand that active mobility is super important. It's not that expensive to implement. It can be implemented quickly. Uh, there's not a lot of resistance. And if you can change um, three or four or five percent of all the trips that the citizens of your city make from uh, single car trips, all kinds of good things are going to happen. And I was thinking back to January or February, where I really felt like uh, our nation was finally in a transition point on climate change, where suddenly there was bipartisan interest in Congress to finally acknowledge and address climate change. And I was thinking that 2020 was going to be a great year for bicycling investment and bicycling promotion and bicycling encouragement uh, and and an important transition year. And then the virus hit. So there's still that hanging out there, you know, after, um, after the fires in Australia, and the, the images of icebergs melting. And I think Americans finally, and three of the four hottest years in history being the last three, uh, uh, were starting to get serious about climate change. And now I wonder if that will be pushed aside or simply postponed or, God forbid, um, forgotten. Tim, let me, let me step in a little bit here and tie those last two points together. I think we... I think the pandemic is giving us an opportunity to make that make an important switch. But I, I want to circle to our first question. The question was, do I think after this, people will cling to those old behaviors, the be- new behaviors that they've learned? I think that they won't unless we do some structural changes. And so as I've been thinking about this, if I, the, the fear of riding on transit, which I think will persist for a little bit, and how do essential workers get to work? If we put those two together, that's where I think the rise of e-bikes, the potential for e-bikes is enormous, but we need to give people the road space to do that. And ideally, we would be giving some subsidies for e-bike purchase. So I know that in many different cities, they've made the shared bikes for free, and some have been adding electric bikes. But let's double down on that, giving those essential workers who don't want to be taking transit, who can't be taking transit in some place because it's shut down, the road reallocation and start subsidizing, giving out money for the purchase of e-bikes. If we can get those structural changes in, I think people would make, more people would make that switch because they would feel safe and now it's a cheaper opportunity. And some of them who are essential workers would now have the experience doing it cheaper, faster, better. The other piece around work from home I've been struck by is it is obviously an enormous difference in terms of congestion and air quality and car dependency. If you think back in Amsterdam long ago, I want to say eight, nine years ago, they required that those city workers who could do so were required to work one day a week from home. I would think that city mayors, if they have it in their purview, should be saying that 
all workers, all, all businesses who have workers that could work from home, as has been exhibited now, must enable, must require workers to work one day from home a week. And that enables us to build in resiliency and, of course, cut down congestion by 20% straight out of the gate. So I feel like there's some things that we can go to, or this idea that I was talking about now, like how do, how do people get recreation when they're in lockdown? If we can tie some of the things that we need to address COVID and this pandemic in ways that structurally change our future, I think people won't go back. I think a whole bunch of people do like to work from home and maybe some don't. But unless we get employers to do that on a large scale basis, I don't see, I, I think people will have to go to work because their employers will say you have to go to work. Or I'd love the transition to bikes and e-bikes, but in the cities that I live in, everyone will tell you it's too scary. So how can we tie that to these essential workers and getting people in? How can we make the electric vehicle subsidies that are happening around the world also apply to e-bikes where you get a much larger CO2 reduction bang for your buck for that same amount of money? So the, the WHO say in this particular crisis, test, test, test. What you're saying there, Robin, is infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. Yeah. And, and I want to make that infrastructure. Oh, one last thing we haven't touched on is delivery. So I want to make that infrastructure, I, I think broadly about it. Yes, it is, is street allocation, but also taxation and also rules. All regulations are a form of infrastructure that we all are bound by. The other piece that's really making me dejected is I've, I've had this huge drumbeat of anxiety over the last two years about the impact of on-demand delivery in urban areas, that we are completely decimating our urban retail. And it might be something that's fine in suburban or rural areas, but I think in urban areas, we really want to retain that. And here we are all being trained every single day. I think that's a behavior that people will continue to do. It's easier than now. And so people will continue to get stuff delivered. So again, what can we do today that you know puts the finger on the scale on local and environmental things? And so going down that path, I would love to see that we build out those bike lanes. And then we require in dense urban, a- in dense urban areas that we have micromobility, electric micromobility delivery. And maybe you would even charge for delivery, per delivery, unless you did it by electric micromobility or unless it came from a local venue. But things to, to discourage the, I need toilet paper, let me have Amazon deliver it from Kingdom Come. Like it's a crazy mm-hmm. thing and we're all built to be easy, lazy and cheap. And we have to, we have to figure out how to, how to curb some of our worst tendencies and make sure that we, we, as I say, put the finger on the scale for environmental, for small footprint, for local at this time as we try to rebuild these economies. Mm-hmm. And Fiona, you wanted to, to say something there. Yeah, I think Robin's absolutely right. Um, so many of those points, the the sort of importance of getting e-bikes out there and getting people to experience them, the, um, the essential workers and the infrastructure. Just on the e-bikes, um, I had a conversation with the National Government's Clean Energy Finance Corporation. They're the ones who take the government money to put into um, – clean energy technologies like wind farms or whatever and 
managed, I found that they have some interest in potentially financing a company who could lease e-bikes to essential workers um, to help in this time. And for ourselves at the City of Sydney, we, we normally run cycling courses to help new people um, to, to get up to speed on, on riding safely and confidently. And we've had to stop that because of the bans on group gatherings. But what we're doing now is offering personal bike training for essential workers. So if someone wants to start riding to work because they need to avoid public transport, um, then we will have a skilled instructor come to their door and ride with them and give them the training on the way so that we can help people to make that transition. That's great. Now, one piece on e-bikes mm. that you just touched on there that I'm really excited about is that the price of them have come down enough that the a monthly, a year-long monthly payment plan for these bikes now equals, I'll do it in US dollars, is probably $100 or $125 a month, which equal, is the same amount as people are paying for transit passes or f- fuel for their cars. And so we now can present e-bikes for low-income or low-wage workers are now something that is really comparable to their current transportation costs for the first year. And then after that, dramatically cheaper than their existing transportation costs. Mm -hmm. On that note, um, I'd now like to to cut to a a commercial break. So um, take it away, David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's, it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a long time loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Uh, Thanks, David. And we are back with... uh... Uh, with the, the the spokesman, and uh, it's an international uh, panel today. We have Fiona in Australia, and we have Robin and Tim in the US. I gave uh, Robin, Tim, and Fiona some homework, and that was to to read a Forbes article uh, I wrote on an interview I did with Edmund King, uh, who is the, uh, the the president of the AA, the Automobile association and i am going to drop his audio in here so the 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 interview uh, i picked out i cherry picked certain of his quotes but i'm now going to just give the the whole interview right here so here's edmund the media are are kind of beating a path to your door i assume yes we've been very busy because the aa is at the forefront of this crisis there's lots of things we're doing we're helping the 
London Ambulance Service. Last week, we had 41 patrols in 12 depots across London helping to fix more ambulances. It's critical that they almost double the number of ambulances that they've got on the roads. So we've been helping with that. And next week, we're sending in far more resources as well to help with that effort. And um, we've said to other ambulance services around the country, and we're in talks with many of them, you know, can, can we help them? We've got these brilliant qualified uh, patrols. They're all top technicians, top mechanics. Um, they're not being fully utilised on the roads now. So we want to help the kind of particularly the NHS effort where we can. So that's one initiative. And the other big thing we announced uh, yesterday is that the AA is now offering a free breakdown service to all one and a half million NHS workers during this crisis. Um, so they can just register with us simply at the aa.com forward slash NHS. We then text them their dedicated hotline number. And if they have any problems with getting to work, getting home from work or their car at home, we will help them. We've done this because public transport is reduced a lot. Um, many are working long hours, working shifts, doing an absolutely magnificent job. The NHS is always there for us and our guys, and this came suggestion from many of our people, we wanted to be there for them. And already we've had thousands register with us and we've already done um, breakdowns, uh, rescuing nurses, doctors, etc. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good initiative. And I think it, w it will be pretty well used over the coming weeks and possibly months. Well, my wife's a doc, so I'll get her to sign up. I mean, she's sometimes driving into work and sometimes she's taking the electric bike. It's 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 it depends what time her fit uh, her her kind of the shift finishes. She's she's driving in when it's very dark at night. That's the kind of stuff. Mm. But if she's daytime, then she's cycling in. So you mentioned there uh, what we all can 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 tell is happening. In that is, there's less cars on the road. So you're getting less, in effect, business because the, the people aren't breaking down so much because there just isn't so many cars on the road. Yeah, although it is varying quite a lot. So Wednesday this week, we did 5,600 breakdowns. Now, compared to typical Wednesday, we probably have done about 10,000 breakdowns. So that's 35% lower. I actually thought it would be a lot lower than that. And some days it is. Last weekend was very quiet. And I think that's because the government gave extra warnings to people not to go out to leisure areas, to seaside resorts, to parks. And some of the breakdowns we're getting doesn't necessarily mean people are out on the roads a lot, because people who leave their cars for 10 days or two weeks without starting them up often uh, suffer problems with their batteries, and therefore we called out for that one trip where they want to go shopping. On average, we, we have a device called Smart Breakdown. It has a little dongle that goes in your car, and we can actually see what travel patterns are. And before the outbreak, people with Smart Breakdown were doing about eight or nine miles a day in their cars. Currently, they're doing about one mile a day. So that does show traffic is significantly down, despite the government saying there was a little peak at the beginning of this week. Does that not suggest that maybe people could be walking? Cy well, I'd say not even cycling, but walking these distances. If people's average trips are uh, 
um, a mile, that's that's pretty much unessential journeys, isn't it? Yeah, I think the problem is it's quite hard to panic by when you're on a cycle. And that seems to be what's still happening. People are going to the supermarket and buying far more goods than they normally would. And therefore, people are taking the cars so that they can fill up the car. Now, hopefully, there are some signs that are slightly dropping off. And if it does drop off, then yes, if if the distances are that short, people should be walking, they should be cycling, and should be leaving the car at home. But obviously, if it's if it's a weekly shop, if it's that one weekly shop, and if people can't get deliveries because it, it it's problematic at the moment that might be the reason for some of those journeys now the prime minister in his briefing the other day i mean it, it, it the, obviously the statistics are, are very much um not complete but they did show an uptick in in car use last week um is that that kind of that stat that the prime minister showed or the department of transport showed is that exactly this do, do you recognize that stat well, I think it's difficult when you look at the government statistics, because if you actually go out on the roads, they are pretty empty. I've never seen them this empty. They're generally, they're, they're more empty than on Christmas Day. So, you know, we've got a lot of essential traffic on the roads and probably more than we normally have because there are more deliveries to the shops. Um People, and it's not just deliveries of food, but there are more home deliveries as well. Because if people can't go to the shops to buy basic clothing, they will order it online. So you've got more of those home deliveries. And in, in, in terms of, we have seen some peaks when the weather was better prior to last weekend, where people were going to the coastal areas or they were going mm. to national parks probably when they shouldn't have been but that dropped off at the weekend after those warnings i think people generally are following the government advice there are various rumors around at the moment that this weekend sunday is going to be a lot hotter and then easter weekend people may have already had plans to get away normally something like 10 million people in britain do a driving kind of staycation at the Easter weekend and there are questions will some of those people if you like still try and follow up with those plans whether it was going to a cottage in the countryside or elsewhere I mean our our message is very much in line with the government and you know it might seem severe but it really is don't travel unless absolutely necessary and the reason I say that, I've seen a couple of incidents this week. There was one in Glossop the other day, single car, driving too fast, smashed into four parked cars. And it called upon all the emergency services and the NHS to come out and waste their time when they could have been doing more important things. So, you know, people going out in their cars does lead to crashes, does lead to incidents. So people really should restrict it. So I did an article for Forbes on a whole bunch of experts. I know I, I tried to rope you in as well um, about uh, World Health Organization uh, could maybe ask, I can't um, demand, but it can ask or suggest 
that maybe for the duration of this crisis, that gov- national governments actually reduce speed limits. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really convinced that would have much difference at all because traffic is so much lower. Um, traffic in our cities is in- incredibly low and people should currently be sticking to the current speed limits. I mean, slightly worrying. I, I've heard of a couple of police forces um, that haven't given out speeding tickets. And in fact, they've, they've written to some people saying they haven't given out speeding tickets because of problems in the current crisis. And I don't think that sends out a very good message because I think people should stick to speed limits and they're there for good reason. But when traffic is so low and you've got essential journeys on motorways with with trucks, with deliveries, I'm not sure there'd be any great benefit in bringing in an artificial speed limit. But would it not be the case of, yes, the police... It won't save accidents because no one's on the roads. Sorry? But they're going so they're, they're going so fast, though, Edmund. They're, they're, they're really going... But they're some, not. Some you know, this, are this, really, really going. No, this is, this is a minority of cases. And in those cases, you know, a minority, they would go fast no matter what the speed limit is. They're going fast with the current speed limit. So if you change the speed limit, it won't change their speed. What what we've got to ensure is that there is better enforcement. Um, and, and that's why I think it, it is wrong to write to people to say you've broken the speed limit, but we're not going to prosecute. And I, I think that is wrong. But artificially changing speed limits when hardly anyone's on the road is not really going to make any difference those people that are there to speed will speed no matter what the limit is they speed with the current limit so they would speed with an artificially lower limit and changing those limits may actually affect the people on the roads who should be on the roads and who need to get around and are crucial to the national effort of keeping the country running Mm. Uh, do you think once this crisis is over people will binge drive it's interesting i actually think once this crisis is over it could have the opposite effect and rather than everyone jumping into their car and driving off i think some people might begin to think do i really need to use my car every day um i've got used to walking a bit more or even running a bit more which which people are doing I found that I can actually work from home pretty efficiently. I can hold meetings at home and I don't need to drive up to Birmingham to have that meeting because my technology has shown that I can share my screen. I can share documents on my screen. I can see my colleagues. So why should I drive up and down to Birmingham uh, at a great expense, at a, a inconvenience to, to my time? So I, I actually think that some companies and and you know i caveat this because it's not everyone and of course we will always have essential people who need to get to a physical place of work whether on the production line in in the shops for the emergency services in the restaurants in the pubs those people will need to be out there but there are other people that don't need to be in an office five days a week 
And if they even worked from home one day a week, that would have an immense potential effect on traffic levels, on congestion, on air quality, uh, on pollution. We all know during half-term holidays that you know, traffic is reduced up to 20%. You're more likely to get a seat on a bus or a train. So if after this crisis, people who can and companies that can allow it would be more open about letting their people work from home, maybe one day a week, maybe two days a week, that could make a vast difference to congestion, pollution and overcrowding on public transport. Would it not also suggest that the Department for Transport's projections, historic projections that they've did prior to 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 this crisis, will no longer be valid, in which case the £27 billion road programme really ought to be looked at again because the, the statistics it's based on, supposedly, will not be valid. Well, I think the world is changing and it's it's probably changing more rapidly and the patterns of people working from home and their travel patterns will be changed more this year than they have in the last 50 years. So I think that will need to be reassessed. It's obviously early days yet. We will still need investment in our transport infrastructure, no matter what happens. You know, we still have potholes on our roads. There is still underinvestment by about eight billion pounds in terms of that basic infrastructure that that is important to to everyone, not just drivers, but more so people on two wheels and people on two legs. So we will still need investment. But I think it'll be interesting to see after this crisis, what 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 are the traffic flows? Have they changed radically? And if they have changed radically, and indeed the same with rail travel and passengers on rail and buses, if they've changed rad- radically, and that remains to be seen, but if they have done, then Yes, like like any transport investment, it, it should be based on true reflections of, of what's happening in the real world. I think it's early yet to predict that, but certainly something that should be studied. And the, the government's going to be kind of short of cash because it's 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 opening up. It's shaking the magic money tree, Edmund, and it, mm. it's it's shaking that money down for the National Health Service, for the self-employed, I'm putting my hand up here, uh, to keep us in business, all, all sorts of uh, rescue packages are being put in place for to keep the economy uh, on the straight and narrow. Um, if that's the, uh, 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 the case and the government does have less money in the future, might roads... You know, might those juicy roads programmes, which which always they, they, they put out there at the, you know, the, the, the conference once a year... But it's quite easy to claw that back, and bam, you've already saved twenty-seven billion pounds just by not having, you know, a, a, a tunnel under Stonehenge kind of stuff. I mean, I do think the government will have some tough choices. The the government at the moment is spending like there's no tomorrow, and probably for good reason to safeguard jobs, to safeguard the 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 country, basically to help the country keep going. And that, that's with good reason. One must question afterwards, what will the priorities be? A lot of money, a lot of extra money is, is going into the NHS to, 
make it run more efficiently. Um, there isn't a bottomless pit. There are some big expenditure projects out there. High-speed rail, for one, is, is, is one. The a lot of money. There's a lot of there's there's divided opinion as to the benefits of speeding up those journeys, particularly with more people working from home and using technology. Do you really need that extra twenty minutes, thirty minutes? So I think there would be questions there. In terms of road infrastructure, it will still be important for the majority of freight journeys that that go by road and there's very little likelihood of that changing. In fact, to some extent, what we're finding in society is deliveries by road are actually increasing, not decreasing with the demise of the high street. And this was even before the coronavirus, those patterns were changing and the fastest level of growth was in the service industry with vans delivering, with services being delivered to the, to the doorstep. So, so that was changing anyway. So we will still need transport investment. There, there is no doubt about it. I guess the question is, will it need to be on the scale or can we afford for it to be on the scale that it was before this crisis? And I think there's certainly questions over that. And how about making investment in other areas of transport? So what would be your opinions on, I don't know if you've seen uh, Berlin, Bogota, a number of cities have, have have taken space away from cars in their cities and actually carved out temporary bike lanes. Would you be in favour of that happening in British cities? Well, I think we, we've got to look a bit further than that. We've got to look further ahead than that. The, 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 those are kind of localized policies but if we're really serious about the future if we're serious about the environment if we're serious about the switch to um uh, zero, zero emissions low carbon emissions we we've got to be slightly more radical than than even that and something i um proposed uh in a sub submission to the wolfston economic prize was looking further ahead and if you like, in introducing kind of restrictions on journeys, but doing it in a way that's sellable to the public. So that analysis was on road miles that everyone in the country gets 3,000 miles free that they could use in a car. Um, after that, they would pay a charge per mile. If they lived in rural areas, they would get a third more. But the idea of that is to encourage people to think about their journeys. And if the journey isn't necessary not to make the journey, and if they do make the journey beyond those 3,000 miles, they'd pay for it. Now, that would help the transformation to um, low emission vehicles because you'd give incentive for electric vehicles. And it would reduce travel in town and city centres ra rather than making small changes here and there, which, yes, can be beneficial on a local change, but something on a national level would have far greater effect. So that that was a project you worked, the, the, the Wolfson thing was something you worked on with your wife, wasn't it? Yeah, my wife is an economist, so she kept me honest with all the figures and the projections. So it, it was very much a dual thing that I, I worked on the broader ideas and analysis and my, my wife worked on the economics of it and how it would work for the nation. And, you know, there is no doubt we, we will have to change the way we tax transport because 
if if we're really serious that after 2035 or possibly even 2030 that all new cars should be zero emissions well what that actually means is that the 30 odd billion pounds that the government currently gets in terms of fuel duty and vehicle excise duty that that will then begin to disappear and the treasury needs that money probably in the future more so than now in terms of paying for the hospitals and paying for the current crisis and if we all switch to electric cars the government's not getting that money in fuel duty so the beauty of road miles is that it can change over time you can crank up the costs over time as the change goes from fuel duty to electric cars and it can put a charge on electric cars because one of the things no doubt look at our towns and cities yes you can get rid of some of the air quality problems changing from a combustion engine to an electric vehicle but it doesn't necessarily get rid of the congestion problems and even with driverless vehicles you know the vision of hell is that you turn up in santa monica in your driverless car you get it to drop you off at the mall and because there's no parking in santa monica the car just drives round and round for hours on its own without an occupant and then picks you up. Well, you know, air quality might be better. It might be easier for you not, not to hail a cab or a bus or get on a cycle, but it's not good for the city. It's not good for congestion. So we need some more radical future thinking and we need that thinking now. And I think that's been one of the problems with government you know, it's been, it's been working from year to year, whereas the world around us is changing. The the measures that we're looking to take longer term to benefit the environment, and rightly so, are going to change the way we pay for transport, the way we look at transport. But I'm not sure we've had bold enough, bright enough forward thinking on these issues so that we're ready for them rather than knee-jerk reactions and restrictions when it's a little bit too late. So many of those themes which you've just mentioned, apart from the the road miles part, uh, were mentioned, at least in passing, in uh, decarbonising transport, uh, DFT uh, paper, which is a, 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 a like a, uh, it goes out to consultation, it, you know, people kind of input their ideas onto this, but it was announced, it was rolled out very quietly by the mm. DFT last week. But Grant Chap, Secretary of State for Transport, did say public transport and active travel will be the natural first choices for our daily activities and we will have to use our cars less. Now, you as a a, a leader of a motoring organisation, would that not be absolutely the worst thing that could happen to a motoring organisation using our cars less? No, I don't think so. I think it would actually be better for us because the majority of people are not going to get rid of their cars. But if they use them less and use them more, sensibly then that's better for all of us and you know it's certainly something that we've advocated for 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 a long time i mean you 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 can still own a car but you don't need to use it every day i own a car but i also have a bike i also have a season ticket um for the railways and for public transport within london and I make a decision. What What is the best decision for that journey? And some people do find it a bit surprising that the president of the AA doesn't drive into London. 
all the time the congestion charge has been going in London, I have paid that charge once and only once. Um, because it's not a sensible option for people to drive into London. There is adequate public transport. People should use it. So no, the world, the world is changing. Um, if, if people don't need to use their cars for every journey, they, they should think about it and substitute other means. Often it's good for their health. If they walk, if, 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 if they cycle, if, if they take a bus for those journeys. But I still think, and this is possibly where, where I differ with others i think the predictions of wide-scale uh car sharing are somewhat exaggerated and it may be a solution in our bigger metropolitan areas but i always say you know if you want to know what people think get out of london go to derby doncaster and darlington and there's a different view of life there and people do tend to be uh, more dependent on their cars. And I don't think that will change in the short term. I think patterns of car use, patterns of journey use will, will change. I think the technology in the cars will change. They will become cleaner and greener. But I think having that car waiting for you outside and studies we've done on car dependence show, for for example, uh, families liked having the car outside just in case Johnny or Jessica are ill and they need to be taken to the doctor or taken to the hospital. So it's that kind of reassurance, that dependence sometimes people are looking at. And I think that would take quite a while before that is totally changed. And that was Edmund King uh, from the AA. So for the, the Americans in our, our panel, the, the AA is the triple A. The, the UK equivalent of, of the AAA. So clearly, I'm going to come to Tim here first, clearly a, a motoring, uber motoring uh, spokesperson like Edmund, if even Edmund is saying, well, maybe the UK government shouldn't spend £27 billion it was going to be spending on roads, that's somewhat of an amazing road to D Damascus for that particular uh, uh, motoring advocate. So is that something that we should be heartened by? And will it happen in the US? Well, I think it could happen in the US. And I do think there is going to be uh, a major federal infrastructure investment program that traditionally uh, would have only been about one or one and a half percent of the total dollars invested would go to um, active mobility, bikes and people on foot. I think it's very possible that that percentage could go up. Uh, I had an old friend in Congress who uh, his name was Jim Oberstar, and he was uh, one of the leaders in the House of Representatives from Minnesota. And he always said, um, the last time I checked, the same people who build roads you, are the people who build paths and trails, you know, particularly paved ones, the same machines, the same materials. And putting people back to work is going to be uh, a priority. But uh, historically, we've had really good relationships with AAA in the U.S. And maybe not a lot of people know this, but AAA, if you're a member, 
and a lot of Americans uh, still are, um, if you are on a bike ride and you get a flat tire or you need mechanical assistance, you can use your cell phone and call AAA and they'll come. And a lot of the AAA trucks in a lot of the states actually carry uh, spare tubes and tools and a pump. And it's the idea that we're all in this together. So I, I think it's possible. I'm encouraged and I, I love that kind of synergy while at the same time, I'm really mindful that um, we have a lot of work to do to get people to th- rethink the way they use their cars in the U.S. So, Robin, that's that's a great segue into you, actually, because that was absolutely what Zipcar was about, which was uh, getting people to rethink their relationship to cars. So how surprised were you that a, a AAA equivalent president uh, was was saying we shouldn't be spending so much on roads in the future. Is, is that a sea change for you? Yes, I can't believe it. I really can't believe it. That is, uh, it's, it is astounding to me that he recognized that life can, that he could do all sorts of things without his car. And the real trick, though, is if you need a car to get to work, then you're going to own a car. And so I feel like that kind of circles us back to where we were starting, which is what Zipcar, Zipcar only is good for people who don't need a car to get to work. And, and for me, it keeps coming back to this question, how can we improve the number of people who don't need cars to get to work or to their livelihood? Um, Tim's description of the potential for a bicycle, or now I want to think of it as a micromobility network, is one that I'm so deeply desirous of and have been actually doing a lot of work on. I have to circle around with Tim after this. But trying to tie it back into COVID, and I know you're going down the AAA, but it's going to be one sentence here, is if we can tie what has been said around Americans or anybody's health, so their weight issues and also their lung health issues to recreation. And so I do feel that if we could let so to tie those issues to response to the pandemic and also when people are in shutdown, what type of recreation they've been doing that's been positive and the potential for these na- these this new net network, I do feel like there's an opportunity there and a window that we could tie these strings together of people's reflection on what's been happening in these months and what new piece of infrastructure they would very much like to see. And I've just been thinking about all the shovel-ready projects that are always cars, cars, cars. In in European and the U.S., countries that are very heavily developed, we really have built out all the roads we need to develop. Like we don't, there isn't, mm-hmm. we don't need to be building more roads. So we really could be very usefully building a this new infrastructure that I also am politically pleased by its potential in terms of its good for urban, suburban, and rural areas, that even in rural areas where they have recreation paths and altering vehicles, people love those. And and so it's something that I, th- I think is politically acceptable across all the fronts. And for AAA, I have to say, I am, I am astounded. I'm, for AA, for AA, I'm, I'm amazed that he would say those things. It's pretty amazing. And Fiona, I'm, I'm, I must apologize. I'm not too sure exactly the equivalent in Australia to the AA. Maybe it's maybe it's Australian automobilization. It's also another AAA. Um, but I, how surprised are you at a at an Uber motoring uh, geek 
uh, who's absolutely that's what he's there for is to get more people to drive in effect uh, how how interesting is that and how different is that to maybe what's happening in Australia or do you have somebody equivalent to Edmund who's saying the same things and it's 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 covid is changing the world yeah i think it was fantastic to hear edmund king say that those things um and he's you know, he's, he's definitely right. And it's not that surprising because it's common sense. Um, but I guess what's surprising is we too often don't hear common sense from lobby groups that have a single purpose. In in Australia, we have um, we do have a AAA, but, but it's more the state-based organisations that uh, are more active. And so the Victorian version, the Royal Australian, uh, Royal, Royal Automobile Club of Victoria are progressive and and probably would would say similar things but unfortunately in New South Wales the National Roads and Motoring Association one that we have here is is a bit more conservative. I think what Edmund was saying about technology and working from home was was really valuable. Companies are now discovering that where previously they thought people wouldn't be able to work from home because there are all these security issues and they wouldn't be able to give people access to the system, you know, that's now gone by the wayside because they had to. And so the productivity improvements of, as he said, not having to drive halfway across the country or to another city to attend a meeting that can very easily and effectively be done remotely, it really does call into question how much of our travel is necessary and how much is really inconvenient when when we think about it and we we often hear you know oh but people love their cars but actually I don't think that they so much love the cars as the convenience and freedom to move and get places they don't love being stuck in a traffic jam every day and if more people sort of after this you know in in an attempt to avoid public transport because of social distancing requirements if more people go back to using cars and and in fact, start driving, then that's exactly what they're going to all get, the opposite of freedom. They're going to be trapped in their car in a jam and will have lost that freedom to get around the neighbourhood with their kids, um, you know, as the, the roads fill up with cars again. So it's, it is really important to, to rethink things. And in terms of what um, Tim was saying about potential federal stimulus money, the purpose of the stimulus funding in various countries is to, to get people back in work and to create jobs. And the um, American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, AASHTO, in 2012 uh, published a thing on how many jobs there were by project type. And cycling infrastructure produces way more jobs than pavement widening or new highway construction or bridge or safety and traffic management or pavement improvement. So it really is the, the better thing to do. Why is that, Fiona? Why was, why was it more people... It's it's more complex and fiddly. A lot of the new highway construction, you, you're talking big machinery and um, a more automated and simple um, thing to do, whereas um, cycleways, retrofitting them into cities and um, dealing with all the land ownership issues on a greenway, all of those things take a lot more time and people resources uh, to solve the problems in design and also more fiddly in construction and less big machinery. I also, when, when you say that, I also think we should be saying that you, for the same price, you can get many, many, many more miles of bike lane. So it's more labor mm. and more output, of course, mile per mile. <clears throat> and ultimately quicker, you know, uh, this 
Congressman Blumenauer from Portland, Oregon, always says that the entire investment of the city of Portland in their bike uh, infrastructure network is less than what it would cost to build one mile of Interstate 5 uh, on the east side of the city. So it, you know, it, it is labor intensive and it does require a lot of detail, but from conception to finish, uh, it can be done pretty quickly and pretty inexpensively. And that's, those are both good selling points. So, Tim, that, that's an argument that bike advocates and, and walk advocates have, have used for many, many years uh, to, 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 to little real uh, results. But do you think now is the time? This is the time when actually all of that, that groundwork that you people out there have been putting in for years and years and years, saying this is the cost effective thing, saying federal stimulus is this will get this, is, is now, is it just a, a, the time is now right? And the, 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 you've, you've laid the foundations and now politicians and planners will now actually listen to you. Yeah. Well, here's what I know. Um, we're working in a lot of cities, and I'll give you five, Austin, Texas, Providence, Rhode Island, Denver, Colorado, New Orleans, and Pittsburgh. Uh, and in those, each of those five cities, they've all committed to investing unprecedented dollars to build 100 miles or more of completely interconnected uh, bike infrastructure. And um, they're they're, they're working more, they were working more quickly than ever with a higher level of commitment. And I think that all the points that um, we've made during this discussion will push them to, to, to keep going in, in every way. So uh, at the end of the day, I'm optimistic. In 1973 and 74, those were the two best years for bicycle sales during the uh, oil embargo those were the two best years for U.S. bicycle sales ever. More than 20 million bikes were sold in the United States each of those two years. And I think it's conceivable that 2021 and 22 uh, and hopefully beyond could be uh, a new golden age for bicycling in America. I mean, there were queues out of bike shops. There are descriptions of literally people queuing out of the door and then you're having to order. You couldn't go into a bike shop and get a bike and take it away. You had to order a bike in because they were in such short supply. You think that could come back, those, those, those helican days of bike shortages, but then you fulfill that demand and then you've got lots of people on bikes. Yeah, so a, a lot of uh, bike companies... Uh, even with the closure of many of their retailers, are, are doing uh, very well right now. And it, again, it's an awkward time to be saying that your business is thriving. But um, direct-to-consumer delivery of bicycles, uh, that's going really well. Bicycle repair, that's going re uh, really well. One big issue that's that may hit here is that a lot of uh, bike and bike park factories around the world have had to shut down this spring. And so there could be a shortage of uh, raw materials, even uh, steel, rubber, other materials. So, But that will play out. And when the time is right, there may be a real positive story that sort of blends business and health and mobility and climate change and better communities. And it's a you know, we don't want to preach, but it in some, it's a pretty good story. 
It does sound as though we're getting some. I mean, I I, I definitely picked up a bit uh, earlier in the in the show, Tim, where you were kind of negative in parts. That's that was very very positive. So let let me just go through the panel. We'll we'll end here, and clearly it's it's a, a negative. The fact that we're together here now to to today is is a negative in that it's a lockdown and it's a it's a global pandemic. Clearly awful. But are we collectively? And I'll go. I'll start with Fiona. Are we absolutely optimistic that once this is uh, over with, we will see a different world, a better world, a bicycling world? We have that opportunity, um, but in the past, it's not been taken by our countries, and we need to make sure that the opportunity is taken this time to get the permanent improvements that we can. And Robin, I agree. I think we have. It's a real possibility, but we have to proactively and forcefully make great arguments and make that narrative the obvious choice. And Tim, your closing statement. Historically, uh, I've been discouraged because I feel like uh, too many American leaders view bicycling as either a kid's thing or a weekend recreation thing and and not a fundamental, powerful solution um, to address key societal challenges. But as the other panelists said, uh, right now there's this huge opportunity. Our talking points are lining up really well, and it's not self-serving. It's for everybody's benefit. So at the end of the day, I'm optimistic. Thank you. And thank you to uh, Fiona in Australia, to, to Robin and Tim. To, to close the, the show out, if you could just uh, tell us how people who are listening to this show, how they can either get in touch with you personally or give the, the, the URL for, for, for your particular organization, whichever, you, whichever mix you want to give there, go for it. So let's start with Tim. How do, how do people get in touch with you and how do they on social media? And, and, and how do they get in touch with, uh, with people for bikes? Well, you know, these days I'm happy to spend two, more time um, communicating with people any way I can. But uh, they can email me at tim at peopleforbikes.org. And if they go to our website, um, there's all kind of new material that directly relates to what we talked about today. And then we have really active uh, people for bikes, Twitter and Facebook. So um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. And Robin. People can follow me on Twitter at R M like Mary chase, R M chase and um, Numo, the new urban mobility Alliance has got a lot of the work that we've been doing. So it's Numo and UMO global and catch my attention. <laughs> cool. And Fiona, last but not least. Yeah, the City of Sydney's cycling page is cycleways.sydney on the web. And my Twitter handle is Fiona Bike. Fantastic. Uh, I've got to thank everybody uh, for, for joining us uh, today. It's been a fascinating discussion, uh, discussion that we probably didn't want to have in many respects in that uh, COVID-19 has brought us to, to together and we can we can chat about this. And it, uh, just uh, anecdotally to tell you as a journalist, 
it's 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 very easy to contact people at the moment because they're all just at home. It's, it's, it's true. My calendar it's amazing. My calendar is so yeah. empty. Yes. Uh, so thank you ever so much for 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 taking the time. Uh, hopefully we've we've filled a yawning gap in your life uh, because you're maybe uh, bored out of your your mind. I don't know, but you're all uh, sounds like you're all making sourdough anyway. So so maybe your your time has been filled up uh, without having bicycling chats. But thank you ever so much for 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 taking the time today. And thank you to Fiona Campbell and to Tim Blumenthal and to Robin Chase. And thank you to you for listening to The Spokesman. And today, uh, this episode has been uh, episode 242. Uh, show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. So uh, until next show, get out there and ride.